We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. They studied everything that the Romans did and they matched it and then surpassed it with the technology of the time under this individualistic realm where the individual rose to prominence and was now applauded, whereas before the Renaissance, the church led and individualism was not condoned. Yeah. And some people suggest that this was the beginning of celebrity culture. Da Vinci, interestingly enough, was very vain, apparently, and openly homosexual which for that time would have been quite scandalous in a way, and yet he managed to become one of the more famous and sought-after artists and architects. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 199, Time Trek, Renaissance Redux, Culture's Quantum Leap. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. So, good morning, Harry. How are you? Good morning, Peter. I'm well, thank you. We're having a ferocious kind of late winter, early spring storm here today. Oh. High, high winds gusting into the mid-50s, 60s. And our poor horses are out there with their asses to the wind, (laughs) (laughs) which is what they do when it's really windy. They put their ass to the wind, so it's not as bothersome for them. And they're out there gaily munching on hay in the middle of this crazy wind snowstorm that's going on. Well, it's March 16th, the Thursday that we're recording this podcast. We're only about five days away from spring. Here, it's actually quite mild this morning. It's uh, around plus one, going up to about plus five or six. Mm-hmm. So we're getting a little bit of a meltdown. However, it's going to get a bit colder and snow's coming back. So that's it for today's weather report on both fronts, <laughs> east and west. <laughs> and now over to you for sports. Well, today we're recording podcast TSP 199. And so we're just one away from our 200th, which will be up on April 9th. That's 200 podcast episodes of a milestone for us. Yep. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about the Renaissance. We called it Renaissance Redux culture's quantum leap, that period of history, in some ways, parallels where we are today. Well, yeah, because the Renaissance, in sort of a general sense of divisions in history, kind of situates itself at the beginning of the modern period. So you have classical antiquity, ancient Greek, Romans, Egyptian, that whole thing. And then you have the Middle Ages, sometimes called the Dark Ages, but we'll talk about that. And then with the Renaissance, you have the beginnings of what they call the modern period. So let's begin our story really where the sort of jumping point is. We go back to my ancestors. (laughs) Yes. The Romans. The Romans who were in a class all of their own, dominating the entire European continent and beyond, going towards the Middle East and all of Northern Africa. They reigned for four or five hundred years. Rome was the first city of one million inhabitants, just to give you an idea of what they accomplished. And that wasn't matched until in the 1800s, mid-1800s, when London became the first city in the world of one million people. So for almost 2,000 years, no one was even close to the level that the Romans had set. And of course, the Romans had set so many levels with mathematics, science, their military prowess, their legal system, their organizational skills, aqueducts, infrastructure, and so on, Mm. they went down and we go into the Middle Ages. Now, it should be mentioned, 
we're not experts, we're not historians, and we're not going to be able to focus on everything that happened during the Renaissance and all of the developments. We're going to focus on a few in particular and mention a few others in passing. But the other thing that should be said before we start, really, I think, Peter, is that the end of the Roman Empire was actually the end of the Western Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. The Eastern Roman Empire actually went on for another thousand years until Constantinople was sacked by the Ottomans. So we shouldn't give the wrong impression that the end of the Roman Empire happened. It was really the Western Roman Empire we're talking about here. Right. And the Renaissance is basically Western-centric anyway, because the things were still going on in the East, so developments were still going on in China and other parts of the world. Yep. What we're talking about is West of, as you said, Constantinople. As of 1453, I believe, when the Turks defeated Constantinople, and then you had that mass exodus mm. of scholars and cultural studies and, and everything that made that run over to, of all places, Florence, Italy. Yeah, which turned out to kind of be the center of the Renaissance when we look at it now. It becomes the focal point where you find some of the great artists, Da Vinci and Michelangelo and others, in that area, you have the Medici family who were very influential in supporting the arts and architecture, commerce, and all of that stuff. But before we get to that, though, let's talk about this idea of the Dark Ages, which a lot of historians have called a large part of the Middle Ages, which is a reference to the kind of the loss of all of those advances you just talked about that ancient Rome brought into being as the Roman Empire fell. There were famines, there were plagues. A lot of those developments seem to just simply get put on ice for a thousand years or something like that. But what other historians have pointed out is that the Dark Ages weren't totally dark. There were people living, there were agricultural communities developing new methodologies in agriculture just to stay alive and survive. So it wasn't completely lost. A lot of the texts and ideas from the ancient world were still there in church basements, in cathedrals, and in the hands of elite scholars, and waiting to be rediscovered, so to speak, by Renaissance scholars. So the Dark Ages weren't totally dark, in other words. Well, they weren't. And it's funny, the word Dark Ages, because essentially that particular era ended with the Black Plague, and there's nothing more synonymous with dark than black. Mm. The Roman Empire had held together such a large portion of the European continent and Northern Africa and the Middle East. And in all their systems, there was an order that was kept, even though it was considered a relatively large enslavement of sorts, because basically everywhere they conquered, they enslaved people to their system and so on and built it up. So when that collapsed, you had this populace all over the European continent and beyond that really had little order. So there were a lot of wars, there were a lot of disruptions, and, and survival became the name of the game. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the brain power wasn't utilized so much for the developments of what the Romans had already created. It was basically pushed towards the agricultural end and agricultural developments to feed people and so on to essentially survive. Yeah. And it wasn't until the Black Plague that killed one-third of the people in the world at that time, in the mid-1300s, there were about 75 million people in the world, and the Black Plague wiped out one-third of those people, Yeah, which really, when you compare it to what we just went through with COVID, kind of puts things into perspective. 
Yeah, and it arrived somewhere around 1347 when a dozen ships from the Black Sea docked at the Sicilian port of Messina. Mm -hmm. And people gathered on the docks to meet these sailors and were horrified by a ship full of dead people and people gravely ill, covered in black boils and oozing blood and pus. It was just a horrifying sight. And they turned the fleet back, but it was too late. It took five years for the Black Death to kill that many people that you talked about. Only five years. Exactly. And the Black Plague ushered in a whole new way of thinking as well, because as you know, like many of us who've come through COVID, you develop a different thought process and you appreciate things in a different way. So people began to really appreciate life, pursue pleasures and so on, yep. which started to change the entire mindset of the people that had lived through it. Well, also, you have to think about it too this way, that there were people during the Black Death that felt that the plague was the wrath of God, let's say, on the people who had sinned in some fashion. So lots of folks had a religious take on it. And then there are other folks who probably thought to themselves, what kind of God is this that would allow this kind of horror and death to be placed on the people and might have turned away from religion in that way as well and, and set the stage for a more secular humanist approach to life. So there's that going on as well. For people in general who don't have detailed information about the Renaissance, the names Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Raphael, these names pop up and they're associated very distinctly with the Renaissance. And they also were highly recognizable artists and minds of the times. Da Vinci, especially when you go into Da Vinci's work, I mean, he wasn't just an artist. He was a scientist. He was a designer, inventor of all sorts. Yeah. And a lot of his work is still talked about today. His painting, of course, the Mona Lisa and Michelangelo, the Sistine Chapel, the building of St. Peter's. He took it over at 72 years of age. He was essentially the project manager for St. Peter's Basilica. And these people were the prominent ones. But along with that, as you mentioned, the Medici family that uh, developed a lot of the financial systems, including the double ledger, which is the basis of accounting today. And they developed the first banks, the first money lending systems mm -hmm. that uh, spread throughout Europe. And of course, we talked about the Romans and what they had developed. And essentially what they did was they studied everything that the Romans did and they matched it and then surpassed it with the technology of the time under this individualistic realm where the individual rose to prominence and was now applauded, whereas before the Renaissance, the church led and individualism was not condoned. Yeah. And some people suggest that this was the beginning of celebrity culture. Da Vinci, interestingly enough, was very vain, apparently, and openly homosexual which for that time would have been quite scandalous in a way, and yet he managed to become one of the more famous and sought-after artists and architects, etc. Michelangelo, not only was he an incredible painter and sculptor, but as you said, he was involved in project managing the actual building of St. Peter's Basilica, employing these techniques and styles of ancient Rome and Greece, etc. Interesting with Michelangelo, he also had a kind of tumultuous relationship with the popes of the time. Mm. They would commission him to come and do some sculpture or something that would put them down in history as one of the great popes or what have you. And if he was mistreated in any fashion, 
Michelangelo would just kind of turn around and walk away and go back to Florence and say, forget it. I'm done with you guys. You're idiots. <laughs> and then the Pope would have to come chasing after him with his envoy saying, no, 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 no. We love you. We love you. Come back. Come back. So he was very, in a way, full of himself. So those artists, those architects, they were the first celebrities in a way. And there was a guy during that time named Varasi, V-A-R-A-S-I, who took it upon himself to write biographies of all of the more prominent artists and architects mm -hmm. and inventors of the day. And it's funnily enough, as I was looking on my shelf the other day, we had uh, some books left over from a fellow who lived in our house that we live in now that he left behind. And sure enough, there it is on the shelf, Varazi's biographies of these artists. And it's fascinating to read someone of that time writing about the very people we're talking about now. He's almost like a paparazzi figure, and he's kind of like a media guy. So I thought it was really interesting that these people were really sought after and venerated, these artists and architects and inventors, etc. We also have to remember that these people that we're talking about were the more privileged people in society. They were educated, yep. and they lived in their own particular social economic category. Because when we talk about the Renaissance, most of the general population was not anywhere near that. However, there were developments during the Renaissance which sort of leveled the playing field. And of course, the main one was the printing press. Right. So that's the first of the three we're going to talk about, the printing press, created by Johann Gensfleisch Zerleden zum Gutenberg. <laughs> yeah. Say that three times fast. Gensfleisch means goose meat. So it was Johann Goosemeat who, well, he didn't create the first printing press because several hundred years earlier... In Korea, supposedly, the first printing press was created. So let's be clear. We're talking about Europe and Western Europe in particular when we talk about the Renaissance and these incredible developments. These things and many of them like these things were happening in the East for centuries prior to this as well. In fact, not only was it Western-centric, the Renaissance was primarily focused in Italy and France, mm. but there were other Renaissance going on throughout Europe. Sure. At the time. Oh, yeah. In Switzerland and other places. Well, in Germany, for example, where the printing press was created. Copernicus, the Polish astronomer, mm -hmm. he came up with his heliocentric version of the solar system where the planets revolved around the sun, which was heretical because the church had adopted Ptolemy's version where the earth was the center of the solar system. But Copernicus didn't actually share those ideas until Galileo came along and shared them to change the way astronomy was understood and the way the solar system was understood. So there are lots of other areas in Europe where people sort of stood up and came up with these revolutionary ideas and impulses. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, we should also mention people like William Shakespeare. Sure. John Milton. Yeah. Uh, who were on the English side of the Renaissance, and we're talking towards the end of the Renaissance, because the Renaissance basically ran for about 300 years, roughly the middle of the 1300s to the middle of the 1600s. Right. And so, about 100 years after the beginning of the Renaissance, this is when the printing press gets invented, and people generally agree that it is maybe one of the most important inventions in the history of the human race in terms of our evolution of culture. Because he developed a method of printing from movable type, which was a difficult thing. He included a metal alloy that could melt readily and cool quickly to form reusable type. 
He also developed an oil-based ink that could be made thick enough to adhere to metal type and then transfer to vellum or paper. As his first Gutenberg Bible, he did 180 of them, and the first 40 were on vellum, and then the rest were on paper. Harry, explain vellum. Vellum is, well, basically it's calf skin treated in different ways to create a surface that could be printed on. But you need a lot of animals to create enough of the skin, to create enough volume of vellum to complete your books. And 180 Bibles, that's a heck of a lot of vellum. And you didn't have access to 25,000 calves. But there was also paper mills in Europe that he could acquire paper from. So that's what he did. And those 180 Bibles are maybe the most famous books in the world. Mm -hmm. And apart from all that printing that was going on, there was some very significant things that occurred. As a matter of fact, I think you mentioned to me that Martin Luther began to post yep. things on doors and windows. Well, they not only did books, but they started really with smaller projects like flyers and broadsheets and very small little booklets, which you could produce by the thousands upon thousands and people in the streets then could get word of what was happening in the next village or next country over, could get the word of God or whatever spiritual tradition people were pushing at the time. So Martin Luther took advantage of that and there were hundreds of thousands of these flyers to do with the Protestant Reformation, which was ultimately to happen. Mm -hmm. And these new secular humanist ideas, there were thinkers like Plutarch and Erasmus who help make humanistic ideas more relevant and popular mm -hmm. to the broader Christian society. There was greater openness of the church. So the Vatican sponsored more art and reforms as part of the counter-reformation response to the criticism of Luther, as you mentioned. And also, this whole period set the stage for really the separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. What followed the introduction of the printing press was really a lot of strife as well. So not only could people be more educated, but they could also have differing ideas that resulted in conflicts. And you had religious wars following on the heels of the printing press. You had the Thirty Years' War ultimately ending in the Treaty of Westphalia that we talked about in a previous podcast. So the education of the lower classes into a kind of middle class not only was a good thing, but it also resulted in conflicts. So it's a mixed bag. The Crusades were also going on in part of the Renaissance period, and that led to more exposure for the European scholars to Eastern ideas, and also facilitated the growth of trade and commerce. Right. And so with the growth of trade and commerce comes the kind of intermixing of scholars from different parts of the world, which again makes a more cosmopolitan ethos mm -hmm. in society. When you have scholars from the Far East coming and teaching at the universities, there were educational facilities beginning to spring up during the Renaissance as well. So this rise of the middle class was the result of that. And those folks had disposable income and they could then spend their money on building a sculpture to themselves or having themselves painted or what have you. So again, the arts flourished as a result of that. The other development that helped with trade, of course, was the development of the pocket watch, which actually helped in astronomy and helped in seafaring navigation. And so you had a huge amount of people sailing off to discover the new world. Christopher Columbus reaches the Bahamas 
1492. And Vasco da Gama is out there, and all of these voyagers are out there discovering the world. And so the world kind of broadens during this period as well. As does the trade and the exchanges. And of course, monetary systems had to be developed now because of the expansive growth. You could no longer just barter with anyone. You had to put value on things. Right. Now, didn't they introduce the florin in Florence during this period? Yes. So can you talk a bit about the banking system that emerged as a result of this? Well, the Medici family began to acquire great wealth during this time, being the elite family in Florence. They were the equivalent of our high-end earners today, our billionaires, who took a celebrity status and, of course, was also paying commission to all the artists and so on. So the artists themselves were much more engaged because of this flow. People like Michelangelo, Da Vinci, and so on could ply their trade at will because these people were willing to pay for it. They were like Hollywood stars, rock stars that were commissioned everywhere. Mm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the other two elements that we wanted to focus on. One is the idea of humanism. And what that means is a kind of separation of church and state. So human beings began to think of themselves as created by God in the image of God. That's what we've been told by religion. And they began to take that more immediately, more literally, if you like, and began to act as if they could be creative beings in and of themselves. They could find their own moral compass within themselves rather than relying on some kind of spiritual mediator or priest or church Mm -hmm. to tell them what is ethical and what is right or wrong. So we had the beginnings of kind of rational thought of the scientific idea that could be an objective reality that wasn't reliant upon God to tell us how to see it, how to work with it. And so the roots of objectivity begin to form themselves during this period, what is known as the humanist sort of impulse back then. And that included the study of Latin and ancient Greek literatures, grammar, rhetoric, history, poetry, and moral philosophy. So as much as the printing press was a revolution in media, humanism was a revolution in the idea of humans as distinct from God, if you like. Mm -hmm. And so the art of the times portrayed a more humanistic aspect. More mundane day-to-day activities were painted or sculpted. It wasn't just God-related, based in religion. You had perspective, the idea of perspective, in art, which allowed for more realistic portrayal of scenes and images. And so you don't have this sort of flat, two-dimensional religious iconography that existed for thousands of years. You now have a three-dimensional, more realistic look at how humans actually showed themselves and lived in those times. Again, the beginnings of the modern view of humanity. Johann Wolfgang Goth, who in 1787 referred back to, when you talk about the individual, the rise of the individual and the potential, he talked about the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel that was commissioned by Pope Julius II and painted by Michelangelo. He said, without having seen the Sistine Chapel, one can form no appreciable idea of what one man is capable of achieving. That was sort of the sentiment that was prominent during that time. Yeah, so that leads us to the other development, which was the supremacy of the individual, that an individual could be godlike in that way. And in fact, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel depicts God reaching out 
to humanity. The fingers are almost touching. If you look at that image, they're really kind of equal. And further to that, uh, again, speaking of Michelangelo, David, which is one of the great masterpieces of the Renaissance and almost everyone recognizes, mm -hmm. it actually symbolized the defense of the civil liberties of Florence. And his eyes are actually turned towards Rome. The positioning of the statue was such that his eyes were looking towards Rome. That's interesting. I didn't know that. New one for me. And then you may be familiar with the term sfumare, which was a new painting technique during the Renaissance. The word translated means to evaporate or to fade out, and it was developed by da Vinci, yeah. and it enabled greater depth and realism to be given to a painting, as well as the term, you may be familiar with this as well, chiaroscuro, ah. which refers to the fine art painting modeling effect using a strong contrast between light and dark. That's what chiaro and scudo means, light and dark. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, all of these developments, we could go on and on and on, but the idea of the individual as being something to be celebrated, that really is the fundamental beginning of the modern age, the modern society. It's like the fundamental particle within the atom of the modern world, the new world, is the ascension of the individual as the sacrosanct unit. And as you said as well, the separation of things, because that's really when science and rational thinking, all these other developments really begin to separate from the church. And you now begin to develop these very distinct factions among the population where it's no longer church-centric. Right, which essentially leads the way to the next historical period that is known as the Enlightenment. So now you have the rise of reason and the senses and natural law. You've got the concepts of liberty and progress, toleration and fraternity coming into vogue, if you like. Mm -hmm. Constitutional governments. So the Renaissance is this incredibly interesting turning point in our cultural history, paving the way for everything that we experience now as our modern world. The Renaissance followed this dark period of medieval history, following a plague. And here we are with our own little plague, COVID, and we're now past COVID, supposedly. Are we going to see a similar kind of renaissance in the world that we saw back in the 14th to 16th century? Well, in many ways, we talked about it at the beginning of the podcast, how you could draw some parallels. Technology, in ways, equals the printing press in terms of development. Some would even argue that the printing press was even more of a step given the times and conditions that existed in the 14th and 15th century. However, in relative terms, we have technology that's doing the same, and now specifically artificial intelligence, which is really beginning to take off. We've talked about AI over the years on this podcast, but I think that right now we are in an era where it's really about to accelerate exponentially, as you probably heard from recent things that have been happening with Google searches and chat GPT and so on. Yep. And COVID, you can't really compare COVID to the Black Plague, not even close in terms of numbers and relative uh, significance. I think COVID for us was a bit of a stumbling block, but I don't think it had the same effect, at least that's just my opinion, that the Black Plague had on what was happening then. Yeah. Interesting too, we talk about the printing press and the flyers that were created that could get people's messages out. It could also be used for propaganda purposes, of course, too. This was kind of the beginning of propaganda, if you think about it as well. 
And now you have social media as a kind of tool to get propaganda out there. And it's being used in that way, in a big way. So all of these developments have their dangers inherent to them. And I see the modern world now as a place where it could go either way. It could go into a very positive cultural renaissance of some kind. Not sure what that would look like, but it could also devolve through this new media, uh, social media, technology, AI, into a kind of scary place to be. Well, the same thing is happening today as was happening 500 years ago. All these major changes were always also pointed towards military developments. For example, even da Vinci. Da Vinci, with all his inventions, he was commissioned early on by the Sforza family in Milan to use his inventions primarily for military purposes. And the same thing is an issue today. The question becomes one of, what are we going to use this technology for? How are we going to implement it? And it seems that we never get away completely from military applications. And so when you talk about negative forces, you talked about propaganda in terms of the social sense, but then there's the actual physical level fear, which is development of nuclear arms and other weaponry, which on a mass destructive level, is also comparable to what was happening in the 15th, 16th century, because relatively speaking, the development of gunpowder, archery methods, and so on, really created a level of killing machines, which was much, much higher in terms of what you could do. And the same thing applies today. Today, you don't even have to drop a bomb. You simply control the technology that controls the communication, that controls infrastructure, and so on. So there are many, many parallels in how and what these things were used for. Yeah. The other interesting aspect is that the Renaissance period was a kind of looking back and rediscovering the wisdom of history of the ancients. It was really drawing from history. Now, in the age we live in, history seems to be devalued in many ways. So, young people going through their education tend not to focus on history as much as once upon a time we did or we were forced to do in our education. Mm. And so you don't have the same looking back and drawing from the wisdom of our past as we had in the Renaissance. So there's a difference, I think, there. We're more forward-looking, I think, now in the world than looking backwards for our inspiration. So there's that difference. I think that's largely due to the fact that we've pretty much controlled the survival level mentality. In other words, food and survival is not a primary issue these days. I mean, there are still people suffering, but most of us have no idea what it means to live under those conditions. So you don't have to focus your energy there. You're not worried about where your next meal comes from. Right. So you can focus on other things. And so generationally speaking, this generation really has not had to deal with wars, depressions, and so on. Because like happened even four or 500 years ago, when these things occurred, they increased the standard of living. Even back then, more and more people could have more and more things, things that weren't necessarily required strictly for survival. Mm -hmm. And so these developments are happening now too, only they're happening exponentially. And yet the other side of that coin too, Peter, is that in the Renaissance, we saw the rise of a middle class, a new middle class. And it's the disappearance of the middle class now that people are worried about. 
causing this huge separation between the elites and the rest of us, if you like, the 99% and the 1%. So there's a bit of a flip there. So I don't think there's a one-to-one correspondence. There are similarities, of course, but the Renaissance had its own unique flavor, its own unique take on the world. It was an opportunity to kind of break away from the constrictions of the church and to be forward-looking. Whereas now we're trying to break away from, well, I think we're going to have to break away from the constrictions of too much government, too much technology, and the overwhelm of social media and all of that. Those are our challenges these days. And in a way, we have reached the point where we're actually going to go in some ways in the other direction. I think we need to detoxify many of the things that we are living in now. It's not just about growth, but it's about regaining some balance. Yeah, it's like the Renaissance was about expansion of all kinds of areas. Now I think we're talking about how do we sort of focus and tune out the noise and make life a little bit simpler, a little bit smaller, a bit more local in terms of our focus. Mm -hmm. So there's a very interesting, yeah, difference there, almost opposite to the Renaissance. Yeah, actually, if I can offer a thought here to conclude this uh, podcast, it's like many things. You're always looking for the center point. You try something, you overshoot, and then you have to correct. And I believe that that's where we are now in many, many areas. We need to correct a little bit yeah, and regain our mental composure and pay attention to the things that are working against us, not just working for us, because technology ultimately does not resolve the emotional and humanistic side of what we need to address in order to live relatively comfortable and contented lives. Yeah, I think we need to also support each other in terms of questioning what authority says is the way to live. I think we need to follow the Renaissance ideal of being individualistic about it and speaking up as individuals and as human beings in the face of these large forces that have played across the world and continue to do so as we speak. So the Renaissance can continue to be an inspiration for us even today. And the word Renaissance itself, it means rebirth. And perhaps we're into a Renaissance of our own making and our own kind right now. Well, let's hope. Let's hope. Ciao, Piero. Ciao, Harry. Take care. You too. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.